Good morning. My name is Chad. I am senior pastor here at Sovereign Grace. I'm glad to have you with us. You may have noticed that some of the elements at the front end of the service have been cut a little bit short. In part, that's because we have baptisms this morning, so we need to make some room in the service for that purpose. With that said, turn with me to Genesis 2. Genesis 2. We're going to complete, if you will, our walking through the creation week. We're going to finish that time this morning. I'm going to read Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and we'll just sort of kind of sum up what we've done in the creation week thus far and what we're being told about its purpose. Uh, So we want to look there together, Genesis 2. We'll read verses 1 through 3. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray we would receive it for what it is, the word of God. We pray that your son would speak to his church through the word and by the spirit, that we would listen and receive it. Protect my mouth from error and protect the ears of our church from error. Cause us to rejoice in the truth, to be thankful that you have created the heavens and the earth as a cosmic temple in which you dwell with your people and in which we have the great gift of worshiping you, of dwelling with you, of being your people and you being our God. Give us clarity as we study the word, illumine our dark minds by the Spirit so we understand what it is that the Spirit is saying to the churches. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you all know that we love to spend time in the presence of people we love. We enjoy spending time in the presence of people we love. And you also know that texting or FaceTime is no real replacement for that. If someone's on the other side of the country or the world, you can text with them and FaceTime with them every day, and you still miss them because you know you're not spending time in their presence. You know that. Uh, That's the effect, at least in my household, of vacation time. Interestingly, I hear this every time we go on vacation. Teresa and the kids and I end up spending a lot of time together. And when the vacation is over, Teresa always tells me that she wishes the vacation was not over because she would like to be spending more time in my presence. The last day of vacation, she already starts telling me she misses me. I don't know if that's happening in your home. I hope so. I hope so. But she didn't want to spend less time in my presence. She wanted to spend more time in my presence because she loves me. If I said to Teresa, let's just take one day every week and hang out with each other, she would not reply, well, that's an oppressive and burdensome command. 
Likewise, the Sabbath is a gift of time in God's presence with God's people. It's not an oppressive and burdensome command. It's a gift to spend time with the one you love in his presence. Along with his people. It's a time in which you as God's children, as his family, come together to rejoice in the presence of your God. Just after the resurrection of Christ, the church gathered every Lord's Day, every Sunday, the first day of the week, the day the new creation began upon the resurrection of Christ, and they did so to worship the Lord. They did this Sunday morning and Sunday evening following the pattern laid down in the Old Testament, where they worshiped Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And they did so because they wanted to enjoy the gift of time in God's presence, with God's people. They were not slavishly seeking to keep a command. They were keeping a command, but they saw the command as giving them some good, not robbing them of something. Just like I don't slavishly attend to spending time with the people I love. I cannot wait for time in the presence of people I love. Further, something happens when we spend time in the presence of people we love, doesn't it? We begin to become like them. We spend time in their presence. For good or for ill, we begin to become like them. A culture forms, and we become like one another in particular ways. Our language even adapts. I spend a lot of time with Jason. As a result of spending a lot of time with Jason, the way I say certain words has changed. I notice it. I used to say sure. Now I say sure. Like it's become a two-syllable word. An S and an H have both been put in there. I now say, you follow what I'm saying? Or does that make sense? Repeatedly. I don't know if he learned that from me or I learned that from him. But one of us infected the other with that cancer. (laughs) Think of how this is true with your children. They often take your ways of living for granted. That's particularly true, you'll find, in a young marriage. Your family culture is just often the way things ought to be. It's one reason young married couples clash initially. Then they stay married for a long time, and sometimes they even start to look like each other. Well, folks, it's the gift of God that we're able to spend time in his presence with his people. In doing so, together we become like him. God has given us this gift. And I'm deeply concerned, Sovereign Grace, that we do not take seriously enough our need for this. Our need for this. We're in a world that tells us it's not that important. See, by the way, for evidence of that, how quickly churches embraced COVID shutdowns. And when I say that, I don't just mean they were initially obeying some command that they not meet, some mandate they not meet. I mean, they embraced that mandate to the extent that many of them said, it's a new era. I met with a pastor who told me the Holy Spirit is doing a new thing, and churches will not gather anymore. They'll just watch on TV. 
we've peeled away Sunday evening services, Wednesday evening services, and even the need to attend regularly on Sunday mornings. We can just live stream now from the comfort of our couches where we can really get some rest. But folks, that's a kind of swing and a miss on the gift of Sabbath and what it is. So this morning what I want to do is I want to address the gift of Sabbath as we look at Genesis 1, 2 through 3, particularly verses 2 and 3. And as we do so, I want to draw our attention back to the purpose of the whole creation. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look first at two reasons. So the first point is two. Do you follow that? First, at two reasons why worship is the driving purpose of the whole creation. Why worship is the driving purpose of the whole creation. And these two reasons are really kind of like almost 1A and B, if you will. And then second, we're going to look at regaining the gift of Sabbath that was lost in the fall. Regaining the gift that was lost in the fall. So why worship is the driving purpose of the whole creation, and how do we regain the gift of Sabbath lost in the fall? So let's look first at the two reasons why worship is the driving purpose of the whole creation. And let me state the two reasons up front and then sort of work through them. Here's the first one. The whole creation account is structured to emphasize Sabbath worship as creation's purpose. The whole creation account is structured to emphasize Sabbath worship as creation's purpose. And that's not going to be lessened when we get to chapter 2, verse 4 and following. That's going to be heightened. We'll see that emphasis even more. Second, the pattern of time as work, six days, worship, the seventh, is emphasized in the creation account. So not only is the whole creation account structured to emphasize Sabbath worship as creation's purpose, But the pattern of time as six days of work, one day of Sabbath worship is emphasized. So let's look at the first reason. The whole creation account is structured to emphasize Sabbath worship as creation's purpose. Now you're like, okay, so we're on 1A. And now I want to give you, in 1A, I want to give you those little, you know when you're starting to outline and you get the little... I, and then I, I, right? One, two, three. I'm going to give you four subpoints to that. You ready? Here's the first one. There is an inclusio between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-1, which sets apart the seventh day as the goal of the other six days. Now, when I say an inclusio, we mean it's a Hebrew literary device that brackets a section of text. It's like bookends, one, on one end and on the other, And it tells you something about what's happening in the whole action of that section of text. And so look at how this text is bracketed. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now look at Genesis 2.1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. So the heavens and the earth and all that fills the heavens and the earth was completed. This brackets the whole section, setting apart the seventh day as the goal of the other six days so that you get, in verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Sets it apart. Second sort of sub-point there is 
Three times we hear the word the seventh day. In verses 2 and 3, something unusual happens with day 7 that you don't see in any other days. And that's that the number of the day is repeated three times. And it's repeated three times intentionally for emphasis. Look there in verse 2 of Genesis 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. On all the other days, we only read about the day once. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and so on. But on the seventh day, it's on the seventh day and on the seventh day and on the seventh day. There's an intentional emphasis being brought. So you have this inclusio that takes all six days and brackets them together, setting apart the seventh day as its goal. And then you have in the language of the seventh day already, this repeat of this notion of the seventh day. Now there's more here. Third little subpoint. Days one, four, and six, the first day, the fourth day, and the sixth day, drive us to the maturing of creation as an account centered upon the preparation of a cosmic temple for the Lord. Now, I can say that as well about days two, three, and five, but I'm just going to pick up days one, four, and six because they sort of set the picture. Day one sets the stage for days two and three. Day four sets the stage for days four and five. And to some degree, six, but then six gives us some information that's important. So let's think about this preparation of a cosmic temple for the Lord. Day one begins the account of making the heavens and the earth inhabitable. Remember I told you that after we're told in Genesis 1-1 that God created the heavens and the earth, in Genesis 1-2, we're then told that the earth was formless and void, And darkness was over the face of the deep. And those terms formless and void are speaking of the earth being uninhabitable and uninhabited. So it's uninhabitable and uninhabited. So day one begins saying, here's how the earth was made inhabitable. We hear of the making of light. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he separates the light from the darkness. And by this light, we see the wonderful works of God. God did not need a separation of light from darkness so that he might distinguish light from darkness. He wasn't blind in the dark before the creation of light. It's us that's blind in the dark that needs the separation from the light and the darkness. And on day one, we hear the announcement that begins the creation pattern And really the creation and worship pattern of evening and morning. And there was evening and morning. And there was evening and morning. And there was evening and morning. Which sets up the worship pattern in Israel in which they bring offerings evening and morning. Or morning and evening. Further in the second and third day, we hear the separation of the waters driving us to the land that emerges. A holy mountain that emerges from the watery turmoil upon which we might dwell with the Lord. Now, I preached on that already on the separation of the waters, and we're going to consider that in more depth as we look at Genesis 2. But here's what I want you to see happening with the separation of the waters and then the emergence of what we call 
Eden and the Garden of Eden. Eden, we're told in Ezekiel, is the mountain where God dwells with man and man with God. It's akin to the Holy of Holies, and the garden is akin to the holy place, and the outer place is akin to the outer courts of the temple. So we'll get into that in Genesis 2. Day 4 begins the account in earnest of inhabiting the heavens and the earth. On day four, we hear that there are greater and lesser lights. And what are we told they're for? What are the greater and lesser lights for? They are to set a pattern. What's the pattern? Appointed feasts and days and years. Look at verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons... And for days and years, for signs and seasons, I spent some time arguing this, is actually, I think, better translated for signs of seasons or for appointed feasts and for days and years. I spent time on that on day four, so you can go back and listen to it. But here's the point. It's setting a pattern for Israel's calendar of religious festivals, of Sabbath worship, and for ordinary work. So days and years are ordinary secular time, if you will, And the appointed feasts, the signs and seasons, or the appointed feasts are sacred time. So you have a distinguishing in day four with the sun and the moon of sacred time and secular time. We don't mean secular in the bad way. We mean in the non-sacred way. Days five and six continue the adorning of the creation with all that is good for man. All that's good for man the creature who's about to be announced. He adorns the earth. Remember I pointed out to you that Calvin talks about what a good father we have who adorns the earth with riches. He, if you will, prepares the house before he brings the sun in. Day six then tells us about man. And we're told that man is made in the image of God. He's the crown of creation. He is body and soul. His soul is a rational and immortal soul. He's created in the image of God in holiness and righteousness. He's created to commune with God in a manner that no other creature is able to do so. And we spent time on that last week. So now we have those that image God, think about this, those that image God dwelling with him in his cosmic temple. They're to reproduce. What are they told to do? reproduce, and spread more image bearers across the face of the earth. And they're to administer his rule in his cosmic temple as they subdue the earth. And finally, as kind of a fourth sub-point here, day seven tells us what God did after the completion of the work of creation as a cosmic temple of his glory. Look there, verse two. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day, from all his work that he had done, God rested. Literally, the text is saying God sat down. You can translate that word as he, God sat down. What does that mean, he sat down? You know, Isaiah 40 tells us God does not grow weary. It doesn't mean that God created in seven days and then God is like, oh, I'm exhausted. I need a chair. Somebody get me a chair. That's not what's happening. What's happening when he sits down is he's taking his royal throne in his cosmic temple. He's sitting down 
to rule and to reign. And then he blesses and sanctifies the seventh day. It is the only day of all seven days that he blesses and consecrates for worship. Further, it's the only day that remains open. In other words, there's no evening or morning on the seventh day. Now, I think that's precisely because man is supposed to spend eternity in the presence of the Lord in Eden, in the Holy of Holies. Now, second major reason why the whole creation account is really driving us is that he's really driving us to worship as its purpose. What is that? Like I said, this is like 1A and 1B because these are so close related. Here's what I want to say about that. The pattern of time as work and worship is emphasized in the creation account. It's emphasized. Note first that the Lord's work was completed. He completed his work. It was finished. Look at Genesis 2, 2 and 3 again. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's an interesting choice of words, this Hebrew word for work. You notice that word work is repeated three times. God rested from his work that he had done. His work. God's if you will, extraordinary work of creation is described with the same language we use for ordinary human work. God has ceased from that work. He is ceasing the work of creation. He's not ceasing all his work. He's not, like, it's not taking a divine nap, right? You understand that? He's ceasing a particular work. But he continues to work in providence and redemption. Jesus tells us that in John 5, 17. And Paul tells us that in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He continues to work. It's just not the work of creating. It's the work of providing and redeeming. He's ceasing a particular work. But there's something more, like I said, about this word rested or sat down. He sat down to rule. This is the Lord sitting upon his throne at the completion of his creation work. The throne of his cosmic temple. The heaven and the earth are a cosmic temple, and the Lord is now seated to rule and reign in his temple. How do I know that? Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All of these things. My hand is made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And now that the creation or the cosmic temple is complete and he's taken his throne, he sets apart the seventh day for worship. And he blesses it and sanctifies it. The blessing of the seventh day will fructify the time. Look what he says. And there's a chiastic structure in here I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but you'll notice this center term, and on the seventh day, God finished his work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so there's a bracketing that happens, putting a middle term, the middle term being verse three, so God blessed the seventh day, that first half, and made it holy. 
he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. The blessing of the seventh day fructifies the time, if you will. The time of that day will be productive. The blessing will cause that day to accomplish its purpose. His sanctifying that day is literally, he consecrated it. He set it apart. He sets it apart for worship. It's a holy day and not a common day. You know, we pick up this language when we get to, for example, the Levitical regulations. There are holy things and common things. This is a holy day. You know, we can set apart holy vestments or holy sacrifices as opposed to common animals or common... We can set apart holy days as opposed to common days. It's the day in which man dwells with God. And folks, when we get to chapter 2, like I said, I'm just going to emphasize this in the Garden of Eden, being a holy of holies in the cosmic temple where Adam and Eve dwelt with God. It's where man dwells with God for eternity, and here's the problem. Here's the problem. Rather than enjoying eternal Sabbath rest, rather than dwelling with the Lord in his cosmic temple, we sinned, we rebelled, and we were driven from the Holy of Holies. We were driven from the holy place, if you will, driven out into the outer courts. Look at Genesis 3 and verse 23. It's a passage that's, I'm sure, familiar to you. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. That's these holy angels. And between them, there's a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We were driven out of the Holy of Holies and out of the holy place in God's cosmic temple. We were barred from entering his holy presence. And we would be slaughtered by God's justice if we attempted to re-enter the holy dwelling place of God. If you tried to re-enter God's holy dwelling place, you would meet the end of that sword. So man now has a problem. What is it? He can no longer dwell with God. But God. But God, out of his great love for us, because he's rich in mercy, because he's pleased to pour out grace upon his rebellious creatures, because of his own kindness, God made a covenant promise. I will send, you guys know this, Genesis 3.15, I will send the seed of the woman. I'll put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman is going to conquer Satan, sin, and death. He is going to redeem us and bring us back to the Lord. And we will once again be God's people who dwell with him. And he will be our God. That's what's happening in the promise in Genesis 3. And we learn the full texture of that when God narrows the promised seed of the woman down to the seed of Abraham. By the full texture of that, I mean we learn the full texture of those promises. In this covenant with Abraham, God provides the central promise of his covenant of grace, which is what? I will be your God, and you will be my people. 
Now we hear that furthered in Exodus and in Leviticus. And I will dwell with you and I will walk among you. As I once did with Adam in the garden. And Abraham's family waits for that promised son, don't they? They wait and look for him. And Abraham's family grows and becomes a nation. And we call that nation Israel. Because God called them that. And they, Israel, continue to wait for him. As we come into the Exodus account, they are waiting, but they're continually reminded in their life as a people that the goal of their redemption is to dwell with God as his people. They're continually reminded of that. The purpose of creation and now the purpose of redemption is to dwell with God as his people. Just think of the Exodus pattern. Think about it for a minute. In the Exodus pattern... God sends Moses to redeem Israel out of slavery to Egypt so that she might what? So that she might what? Be free to do with her life whatever she wants. She needs to be out of slavery so that she can overthrow the oppressive Egyptians and live for herself. Is that what it is? So that she might worship him on his holy mountain. And the Lord takes them to Mount Sinai to do what? To worship him. And to make a covenant with him. God makes a covenant with Israel. Moses is the mediator of that covenant. And we're told that the Lord would dwell with Israel in a tabernacle that Israel would build. They would build this tabernacle. And we read about that covenant document and the cutting of that covenant in Exodus 19 through 24. But just after Exodus 24, after the making of that covenant in which they're told they're going to build a tabernacle and God is going to dwell with them, then the Lord gives Moses instructions to build the tabernacle. A place where he would dwell with them for sacred worship. And in those instructions of Moses' work in building the tabernacle, we see a similar pattern as we see in Genesis 1. I want you to look there. The Lord actually says to Moses seven times, gives him instructions, he speaks to him, and God said... Seven times, mimicking the seven days of creation. Look at Exodus 25. Exodus 25. I'm not going to read through all of Exodus 25 to 31, just in case you're concerned. I just want to mark these. Exodus 25, 1. The Lord said to Moses. Now go to Exodus 30, because the Lord has a lot to say between 25 and 30. Go to Exodus 30. Second time, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses. Third time, verse 17 of Exodus 30. The Lord said to Moses. Fourth time, verse 22 of Exodus 30. The Lord said to Moses. Fifth time, verse 34. The Lord said to Moses. Now, sixth time. Exodus 31.1. The Lord said to Moses. Now, let's... Get to the seventh time the Lord speaks to Moses. Verse 12 of Exodus 31. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Note that language. It is on the Sabbath that the Lord sanctifies his people. Now, not merely on the Sabbath, but 
preeminently on the Sabbath. And time in God's presence on a particular day sanctifies them. Sanctifies them to what end? That they might dwell with him forever. And the Sabbath is a sign to them of that purpose. Listen, to reject the Sabbath command is to reject the gift of dwelling with God in his presence. And thus it's to be cut off and to die. It is to say I would rather dwell out there in the outer darkness than in the Holy of Holies with the Lord. Well, look at Exodus 31, 14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. The whole of their lives will be patterned after the creation account. Work six days, rest on the seventh. Look at verse 15. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, just to follow up on this, so you can see the creation account continuing here the mimicking of the creation account in redemption. Look at what happens when the tabernacle is completed, when it's finished. Go to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. There's so much more here in these chapters that you have to know it's so painful for me to skip over, but I'm going to skip over it just to kind of sum it up. Look at Exodus 40. Look at the very last phrase. The completion of the tabernacle. Now notice the language. Exodus 40, verse 33. So Moses finished the work. You know what's interesting about that language? So Moses finished the work. Same basic language we see in Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3, when God finishes his work. Same language. Same Hebrew words. If you read the Greek, the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that exists before the time of Christ and the apostles, same Greek word. So Moses finished the work, and what happens then? Look at verse 34 of Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory fills the tabernacle. God was dwelling with his people there in the tabernacle. Now, there's much more to say about Exodus because there's a problem that immediately follows here that Leviticus is going to answer. But I just want you to pay attention to the pattern. It's mimicking the creation pattern. The Lord creates and furnishes a cosmic tabernacle for his worship or a cosmic temple for his worship in Genesis 1, in days 1 through 6. And on the seventh day after he finishes his work, he rests from his creating work. He takes his throne in that temple and sits down and rules and reigns and he begins to fill that cosmic temple with his glory with image bearers. Here we have 
the temple being finished after seven words to Moses, completing with the Sabbath. And when the temple is, the work is completed, or the tabernacle work is completed, God's glory fills it to dwell with his people. And the Lord sanctified that day for worship, didn't he? When the Lord creates in seven days, he sanctifies it for worship. He blessed that day. The Sabbath day for Israel was akin to a taste of eternity. It's what it was. It's akin to a taste of what was lost, if you will, in Genesis 2. What we had in Genesis 2 was lost in Genesis 3. And the Sabbath day was akin to a taste of that eternity, a taste of what was lost and what will be restored to them once again. The Sabbath day was never meant, never meant to be a burdensome law for Israel. It was a gift. It was a gift. A day to draw near to the Lord. A day to be in his presence and to be made like unto him. But Israel, like Adam, pursued using every day for her own pleasure. Israel misunderstood the gift of Sabbath in two ways. They might be contrasting, but in some ways they're very related. I don't have time to get into it. But here's the first way they misunderstood the gift of Sabbath, and probably the same way many of you do. First, Israel made the Sabbath a burdensome law, focused upon what is denied to God's people. A burdensome law focused on what's being denied to God's people. And they made it, in doing so, into a merely external standard, a law that had little to do with worship from the heart, a law that, if you will, religious leaders believe they could keep. And we see Jesus rebuke that misunderstanding of the Sabbath again and again, don't we? He rebukes that misunderstanding. Alternatively, Israel made the Sabbath into a day to be selfish and to be used for her own gain. She reveled in her own sin on the Sabbath, just like every other day. And we do this now, by the way, when we treat Sunday like it's a second Saturday. Like most people, I think, they think of Sunday as their second Saturday. So, TJ, I think it's God, it's Friday. I have two days that are just alike where I can do whatever I want with my time for me. That was never the purpose of the gift of Sabbath. Look at Isaiah 58 to see this misuse and what the purpose was. Isaiah 58. There's actually a lot in this new covenant promises that are coming and pointing toward the restoration of Israel and the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah, really, 40 and following, chapter 40 and following. But I'm just going to hone in on Isaiah 58. We're talking about the purpose of the gift of Sabbath and how it's misused. Look at verse 13 of Isaiah 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, now notice what does he mean by that? From doing your pleasure on my holy day. Hear that? The Lord's speaking to them. You're doing your pleasure on my holy day. And call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, 
you have used the Sabbath to take pleasure on God's holy day, is what he's saying to Israel, rather than feasting on God's blessings that he's offering to you in that day. It was a day of rest, a day of worship. The people of God were to call the Sabbath a delight, for it was in that sacred time that they were blessed by the Lord with holiness, dwelling in his presence in a way that was unusual for the rest of their week. A day of rest. Let me say something about what rest is not. Rest is not taking a nap or laying around. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to take a nap. Naps are good. Do not misunderstand me at all. Rest is ceasing from secular activities. That's what's meant here. It's not staying home to watch sports and movies. That's not rest. Great. Do that all you want on Saturday. That's not fulfilling the promise of Sabbath rest. It's not what God's promising you. He's not promising you a good football game on Sunday afternoon. I didn't say, if you didn't hear me say, I'm denying to you the right to watch a football game on Sunday afternoon. I said, watching the football game is not the gift of Sabbath rest. It is giving yourself. What is it? Sabbath rest. It is giving yourself to the Lord in worship. It's taking the day to enjoy him and all that he's done. And it's not the Lord's hour and a half either, by the way. We don't call Sunday the Lord's hour and a half. It's the Lord's day. Morning and evening service. I hear this from people. Don't you think morning and evening service is a bit much? It's supposed to be a day of rest. Well, that's entirely ignorant as to what is meant in the Bible by rest. Entirely ignorant. The church throughout the generations worshipped morning and evening and considered it rest because they understood that rest was the giving of ourselves to the Lord and the receiving of his blessings by dwelling in his presence with his people. It's taking time with God's people to admire him as creator, provider, and redeemer. Now it is rest from secular labors and from the frustrations of the fallen world It is rest in the sense that one is refreshed by the Lord. But please hear this. The power of that refreshment is not your couch. It is the Holy Spirit applying God's promises to your heart and mind. That's the power of the refreshment of Sabbath rest. The point of Sabbath worship is not to burden you, but to bring you delight. It's not about restricting from you some good, but about blessing you in God's holy presence. But man has failed to keep God's command of Sabbath worship. We have failed to because we desired something more than we desire God's presence. We did not worship God nor give him thanks, but we worship created things instead. Namely, ourselves and our own sinful desires. So what now? If the Sabbath command was a gift to have a taste of what was lost at the fall, and we've rejected even that gift. We've rejected even that gift. How do we regain the gift of Sabbath lost at the fall? How do we regain it? And that's the second major point, which isn't going to take very long. It's actually going to feel sort of minor. But 
you're going to get it as far as what I'm getting at. Regaining the gift of Sabbath lost after the fall. How do we do that? Well, I want to come back. What was the purpose of Sabbath? That we might dwell with God and he with us as his people. And what was the central gracious promise God made in the Old Testament? What was the central gracious promise he made in the Old Testament? That he would send the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and through him we would regain what was lost. We would once again dwell with God in his holy presence. With that said, I want to point you to the prologue of John's gospel. Look there. John chapter 1. I pick up on this because we'll actually, after this Sunday, spend the next eight weeks in John's gospel as we go through an Advent season focused on the I Am statements in John. But look at John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, go down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh. In other words, the Son of God took humanity, body and soul, to himself. You hear that? The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took humanity, body and soul, to himself. The Word became flesh, now notice what it says, and dwelt among us. That word can be translated tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the tabernacle. He'll tell us in John 2 that he is the temple of God. That's why in Matthew we hear that you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as the Christ, the God-man, he kept the law for us. He is holy, sinless, undefiled. He was tempted in every way, yet never sinned. He is the last Adam, the true Israel, the one who did what we failed to do. He kept Sabbath when we failed to. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, came to do the work of redeeming us from sin and death from the eternal judgment due to us. He came to bring us into God's holy presence forever. So let's look at the completion of his work of redemption. Look at John 19. John 19, we'll see the completion of his work of redemption. A work promised in Genesis 3.15, and that promise unfolded across Scripture until his coming. Then we see in his incarnation, his life and his ministry and his death, Let's look at the completion of that redeeming work. John 19 and verse 28. Now notice this. After this, this is while he's on the cross, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine... He said, it is 
finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Same word as the Septuagint uses in Genesis 2, 2-3 and Exodus 40 and verse 33 when God completed or finished his work and Moses completed or finished his work. So Jesus completed or finished his work. What work did he finish? The work of redemption, the work of atoning for our sins. And he rose on the third day on the Sunday, on the first day of the week or the Lord's day, conquering sin and death and ushering us on that day into a new creation. And what did he do after that? Now, we spent a few years in Hebrews, so I want you to hear it. What did he do after that? I hope it reverberates in your mind. Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers in the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his power. Now listen, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What did Jesus do after he completed the work of redemption? The work of the new creation? Beginning that, he sat down. He took his throne to rule and to reign over the new creation. And we're told in Hebrews 4, he is now our Sabbath rest. We have our eternal rest in him. Our eternal rest in Christ began the moment we were saved. At that moment, we became a new creation. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we will enjoy eternal Sabbath rest with him. So here's my question for you. Do you trust in him? Are you looking to him? Are you looking to Christ? Or are you hoping somehow to earn eternal rest through what John Gerstner so eloquently called your own damnable good works. Your good works outside of Christ are called filthy rags. God wants none of them. Rather, what does Jesus say to you? What does he say to you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So if you're an unbeliever in here, if you're someone not looking to Christ, I exhort you, go to him. He will give you rest for your souls. In Sovereign Grace, we're left with one final question I sort of don't want to leave off the table. If Christ is our eternal rest, has he taken away the gift of Sabbath worship and the promise to sanctify the Lord's Day by dwelling with his gathered people to bless them and sanctify them? And the answer to that is no. Surely he has not removed from us such a gift. 
Why would Christ take such a gift from us? Certainly this pattern of six days of work followed by one day of worship will end when Christ returns and we enjoy eternal Sabbath as we dwell with the Lord forever. But that day is not yet. It's not yet here. It really is ours, but we await its consummation. Listen, if you think of the Lord's day observance merely as some law you fail to keep, some law that binds you from all kinds of good secular work, entertainment, and self-interest, then you never understood what it was in the first place. If every time the Lord's day comes up, you start thinking about restrictions on your freedom, you miss the point entirely. That's why I haven't talked about any restrictions on your freedom. I've just said, why would you give up dwelling in God's presence for that other stuff out there? Jesus is at pains to correct our faulty doctrine of Sabbath rest. Sabbath is not a burden. It's a delight. Yes, we have violated it numerous times. Yes, he has kept it for us. But no, Jesus has not taken God's good gift from us. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a day set apart for us, the Lord's Day, a day in which we gather with God's people to draw near to the Lord and to receive the blessing of sanctification. Christ walks among us today, Sovereign Grace. Revelation tells us that, doesn't it? He walks among his lampstands, the churches. He speaks to us today by his word. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that. He leads our singing today, also Hebrews 2. He feeds us with his own flesh and blood today in the Lord's Supper. He does all this by the means of word and sacrament, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, all received through the grace of faith. Why would you want to reject that glorious gift? Why would you want to be out there in the, if you will, the outer darkness when you can be dwelling in the presence of God with his people being blessed and sanctified by him? Don't reject the gift. Rather, let us not forsake the gathering ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us give thanks for the privilege of sacred time in God's presence with God's people. Let us, if you will, enjoy this as a taste of our eternal rest in him. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the gift of dwelling with you and with your people. We know we don't deserve it. You have been gracious to us. May we enjoy this blessing together. May your son be exalted as we do. And Father, we pray for those who are not looking to Christ, that you would be pleased to save them Give them rest for their souls. In Jesus' name, amen.